1 Samuel chapter 27. We'll be reading the entire chapter and, and then going into verse 2 of chapter 28. 1 Samuel 27 through verse 2 of chapter 28. Just to give you a reminder of where we've been and why we're reading through 1 Samuel. If you recall, as I zoom out, you know, what's the whole purpose of the Bible? Why did God give us this word? <clears throat> and it's to remind us that sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. And the entire Bible is about how will our sin be forgiven? How will we dwell with God? And one of the answers to that is that he's going to provide a king. A king that will rule over us, a king we'll submit to, a king that will rid the world and ourselves of sin. And so we're getting a picture of who that king is like as we read through 1 Samuel. And as if you continued and read through the Kings and Chronicles, it's, it's, it's following God's establishing of this, this monarch, this king that we're supposed to submit to. And some kings are good, some are bad, but none of them are perfect. None of them are the king that we absolutely need to be saved. They all point to a greater need, the greater king to come, David's greater son, Jesus Christ. So every time we read through 1 Samuel, we're going to be looking for hints. We're going to be looking for these promises that this king is coming and how he saves us. And that he will come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We, as a tradition, stand for the reading of God's word out of respect for the speaker who is God. I'm just the reader. So if you would, please stand as we read 1 Samuel 27. This is God's word. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Well, there's nothing better for me and that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the six hundred men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. And then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns, that I might dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur, to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeramalites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, 
He shall always be my servant. And in those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable and honoring in your sight. O Lord, our rock and redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why do desperate times often bring out the worst in us? You know, there's a saying that says, you know, the desperate times or tough times bring out the best in us. Well, they also sometimes bring out the worst in us, where we struggle, where the sin that remains in us gets rattled and shaken up. If you, if you think of a, a glass of water, like here, if you imagine sand at the bottom of it, we are all sinners. So we have this, the, sin rep, represents our, the, the sand represents our sin, and it stays still at the bottom. But if it's knocked, that sand is going to go all throughout the water. And it's like in life, when, when we face tragedy, when we face desperate times, our sin gets stirred up in us. And we often don't act according to what we believe. You see, we've seen David throughout the time of 1 Samuel as this great man of faith. He's done great things. He's killed Goliath in battle. He's uh, made raids against the Philistines. He's been faithful as Saul, the king, pursues him. And as David is this fugitive and had two opportunities to take Saul out, but didn't do it because he knew taking the anointed king out would be against God's will. And even last chapter, he repeated this phrase, well, as the Lord lives, I won't do this. I won't take Saul out. And so we're seeing him go from a man full of faith to a man full of doubt and uncertainty. So when you're in a crisis mode, do you sometimes fail like David did? We're going to look at several mistakes that David makes in this scene and as I was reading the commentaries this morning, at, or throughout this past week, there was some tension in how people understood what David is doing. Is he doing some good here? Is he doing all bad? What is going on? Well, we're going to see that he actually makes three major mistakes and how we can learn from them. The first one is that he speaks lies. He speaks lies to himself and to others. Number two, he seeks success, not faithfulness. And number three, He strives for an identity outside of grace. But as we look to David, here's our difficulty. We don't want to fall into two different different traps. The first trap is what I call hero worship. Hero worship that we see often in some other circles, or even in our own circles, where we can never speak openly about our hero's failures or weaknesses. That's the first trap. The second trap is to be overly harsh, overly unfair or critical toward those who've gone before us. And so the answer is we can do two things at once. We can be critical of David and the bad choices he makes, and we can sympathize with him, knowing that he's in a bad, desperate situation that he didn't ask for. 
brought upon him by Saul. But in both cases, we're pointed beyond David, aren't we? We're pointed beyond David to one who's greater than David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was perfect in our place and loved us perfectly to the end. Let's look at the first idea of of speaking lies, the danger of speaking lies. And the warning to us is to be careful what you speak to your heart. Look at verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. Your translation may read that David said to himself. The more literal translation is that he said to his heart or in his heart. He's speaking to his heart. Now I will perish. This chapter has been called the godless chapter. God isn't mentioned in the entire chapter, which is unique. Usually God is at least mentioned somewhere in every chapter of of 1 Samuel. But we've known even when God isn't really talked about, he is present. He He is moving things. He is sovereign over what's going on. But God's not mentioned in this chapter at all. And I think the reason being is it it shows us where David is spiritually. If you notice, he doesn't consult with God before he does this, before he goes to the Philistines. He doesn't pray to God. He doesn't seek a prophet out to get word from God, which has happened in previous episodes. There's no corresponding psalm in our Psalter that relates to this scene. If If you remember, in a lot of times in of difficulty in David's life. There's a psalm that we can find where he prayed to God and he asked for his help. And there's no psalm about this time. This tells us where David is. He's distant from God, spiritually distant from God. And not only spiritually, but physically, he is moving himself away from the land of promise, the inheritance. And so as we think about this, remember what we tell ourselves might be false. And it very often is false. It's not true. Look at what he says. He says, Now I shall perish. I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. He's saying something that's not true. He's been told very differently from God and others. And I'll I'll give you examples. But don't you and I do that as well? We speak false things to ourselves. I don't know what you guys think about me as your pastor, but I wake up every morning speaking lies or hearing lies to myself. Things that aren't true. Hearing doubts that I say to myself. right? Hearing fears and worries and anxieties every morning that I wake up that I don't welcome, but I'm speaking to myself. And so when you do that, when you hear these lies that, you're, that you say to yourself, what should you do? Where should you go? Should I get myself in position to check my email? Should I get myself ready to check the news? Social media? No. I should get myself in position to hear from God. You need to hear truth every single morning because we speak lies to ourselves. We speak falsely to ourselves. You see, David needed to be reminded of what was true And you see, in 1 Samuel, we have examples of people speaking truth to him as to what is true and what's going to happen. If you go back to chapter 25 in the scene with Abigail and Nabal, Abigail who becomes his wife later, this is the word she says to him. 
to David. She says, if men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, David, well, your life will be bound in the bundle of the living and the care of the Lord your God. You're going to be okay. He's going to protect you, Abigail says to him. In the words of Saul himself to David, he has reassured him of God's love. Look, he says in chapter 24, after David spares his life, he says to David, know that you shall surely be king. That's from the words of Saul himself. And that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hand. Saul, his his persecutor, said that to him. And then in chapter 26, where we just read last two weeks ago, Saul says this to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and succeed in them. He heard truth from Abigail and Saul and others. He also heard truth from God. And this goes back to to God's words to Saul way back in chapter 13. When, when Saul was being rejected, the Lord said, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. That is speaking of David, a man after his own heart, who will be the prince over his people. And then God's words to Samuel, when he's about to anoint David, he says, Go, fill your horn with oil, and I'll send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, and I've provided for myself a king among his sons. He's going to be king. God has said it himself. And you know, David has even said these words to himself in the Psalms. In Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, this this phrase is repeated several times. Why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. See, David knew when he was down, he needed to look to God. He needed to look to his hope. So when you're speaking lies to yourself, when you are not speaking true things in your heart, do you have others in your life who consistently speak God's truth to you? Do you have other people in your life who will speak the truth to you when you're speaking lies? Do you open your Bible every morning and hear from the Lord? He speaks to us every time we open this through the Holy Spirit and through the written word. He speaks truth to you. Do you open your Bible every morning? And do you preach the gospel to yourself? Do you preach the gospel? Do you look at this word and then say, yes, it is true and tell your heart that it's true? What are you preaching to yourself? What lies are you telling yourself? And what truths do you need to be reminded of? In the Lord of the Rings, there is this villain, uh, a very obvious villain, because his name is Wormtongue. I don't know any good guys named Wormtongue in any stories. But he's a villain because, I don't know if you've seen the movies or read the books, he is sort of this guy who whispers into the king of Rohan, I believe, to try and corrupt him. And as he's whispering these lies to him, because he, he works for the other bad guy, the ultimate bad guy, Saruman, another bad guy. He's whispering these lies to him, and as he's doing it, his physical, uh, uh, his demeanor, and he, he becomes like older and, and weak as these lies are being spoken to him. 
And then as the good guys come in to save the day, Gandalf and the other, other Fellowship of the Ring people, this is what Gandalf says to Wormtongue. He says, be silent. Keep your forked tongue behind your teeth. I did not pass through fire and death to bandy crooked words with a witless worm. That's what you need to say to those lies that you hear. And then in the movie, I don't know if it happens in the book, but they kick Wormtongue down the hill out of off the throne be silent keep your forked tongue behind your teeth and speak truth to yourself don't listen to the lies and so that's what david is doing he's listening to these lies that he's saying in his heart in verse one the second thing that he is the mistake he's making is he's seeking success second idea is that he's seeking success over faithfulness And so let me narrate a little bit what's going on in verse 2 and following. So he arises, David says, David arose and went over, and he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish. So Achish, this is the king in the uh, Philistines. And so he goes down there, he takes his whole household, his wives, his children, and he asks Achish, can I have one of the towns here to stay in? And he strategically wants to stay in a town that is sort of on the border. He doesn't want Achish's eyes to be all over him and, and to what he's doing. He wants to be on the border. He wants to be away. So he gets this town called Ziklag, which is um, toward the Negev and away, a little bit away from the land of uh, the Philistines on the edge. And he goes and makes these raids. So he goes against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites, and he goes and he, and he kills all the people there, these different towns, and he brings the sheep and the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and then Achish asks him, where have you made a raid today? And he tells him a fib, right? He tells him a fib. He tells him a lie. He says, well, I've been going to Judah, uh, and uh, I've been going to the Jeramalites and against the, the Kenites. So he's talking about these other places on the outskirts of Israel. And then he doesn't, he kills man and woman, not, not, not for honoring God, but so that no one can rat him out. And so it works. It works. Look what, look what happens. Saul does not seek him. Look at verse 4. Saul never, never seeks him again after that point. So David is being successful, but the question is, is he being faithful to God? That's the question we need to ask. Saul gives up looking for him. David tricks Achish. It looks like he's being successful, but is he being faithful? Well, it's a good reminder to us as we answer that question, that success without God is actually failure. Success without God is actually failure. And as a parent of younger kids, and now my kids are getting slightly older, seven, five, three, um, but they're getting more involved in sports and you know, athletics and after-school activities and academics, You know, Christian parents feel the pressure to have their kids succeed at everything today. There's so much pressure upon parents to get your kids involved in every program available, every sport available. It's it's so much pressure that people are, are pushing the church aside. The priority of church discipleship and fellowship gets pushed to the margins as more and more pressure 
is put on parents to have your kids succeed at everything with the exception of faithfulness to God. And that's not true success. We're, we're setting our kids up ultimately for failure, aren't we? If we flip those things around. So we need to ask the question, what does success mean for the Christian? What does it look like? What does it mean or not mean? Well, what success doesn't mean is, is it's not long life, right? Jesus actually died in his early 30s. It's not a life either free from struggle or battles with sin. If you even think that you struggle with sin and then now you're a failure, that's not even true. Jesus was one who in every respect was tempted as we are. Biggest, big difference, though, yet without sin. Success is not a life of fame, riches, or notoriety. Jesus, though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. So what is success for the Christian? Success for you and me is a life full of joy and meaning and purpose, the most fulfilling existence there can be, no matter how many years we get on this earth, no matter what our bank account is, no matter what uh, illustrious job we hold. A life of faithfulness is a life of joy and meaning and purpose. When our life is, uh, when our planets and, and our solar system are orbiting correctly. In, in the VBS this past summer, this past month, we talked about how God's grace and living in faithfulness to him creates everything in its right place where your priorities are in its right place. And we use the picture of planets orbiting the sun in its correct orbit. What is success for the Christian? It's a battle-tested life, fighting against sin internally and externally. Success for a Christian is a life of sacrifice and giving so that others could be blessed. As Pastor Ruffin said last week, it's a life of going low to lift others up with the example of foot washing that Jesus gave us. Several years ago, our, our church walked through a tragedy where we, we lost a young man suddenly and tragically. And when I, when I was asked to speak at his funeral, I wanted to remind people of that truth, of what success for a Christian looks like, no matter how many years we get. And the world will say that that young man's life wasn't a success because he didn't live a long life. He didn't conquer all his struggles. He didn't attain a life of fame and riches and honor. And I wanted to remind everyone the world is wrong. The reason we can say any Christian's life is successful was of, is because of who we profess to believe in and trust and rest upon, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Because in Jesus, we trust in him. You have eternal life. In Jesus, all your battles have been won. Because for a believer, not even death nor our sin can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Death is not really death for the person who is in Christ. Sometimes we sing the hymn here, um, Before the Throne of God Above. I love that hymn. And I love the line that says, One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased. By his blood. We cannot die, really, ultimately. Why? 
because we've already died. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's my identity. That's who I am. Your death has already occurred. And so physical death is never the last word, but the servant that takes us from a life of brokenness into a life of healing and wholeness in Jesus. In Jesus, we inherit a kingdom that is undefiled, unfading, and that no amount of money or riches could surpass in value. And in trusting and believing in Jesus, these things could be true for you as well. Look back at verse 4 with me. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. So David was successful in getting away from Saul, but was he faithful? Three reasons he wasn't faithful. The first is that he lived in Philistia. He left the land of promise. It's really never a good sign in in the, the days of Israel in the Old Testament when you leave the land on your own and leave the promised land. That's like an exile. You're away from the land of promise. And he lived there for a year and four months, verse 7 says. Second point that we don't think, that we see that he wasn't faithful, he killed men and women. Now we could say in our day and age that he's just, that's very cruel, that's a war crime, He's, he's killing civilians. Well, if you think about clearing the promised land, that was something ordained by God to to, as a judgment against sinners. And so there's in a sense you could say, okay, he is, he is doing something, he's devoting them to God, but he's not. He's not. He's doing it to cover his tracks. Look back at verse 9. It says, David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the garments. And why would he do that? Look at verse 11. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell us about us and say, so David has done. He didn't want anybody talking about what he was doing. So that's why he did it. Third reason he wasn't faithful, he lied. He lied to Achish. When Achish asked, this is verse 10, when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah. So he's not being faithful. He may be successful, but he's not being faithful. Now, I've thought about this often as a Christian, but also as a pastor. What does faithfulness look like, tangibly? You know, faithfulness for the Christian doesn't always look like success. It looks small. It looks humble. It looks like something no one is ever really going to notice or talk about. The world certainly will not reward it. But faithfulness is what God most wants and what others most need. There's a great quote I wanted to read from Tim Challies about the celebrity, I think it's called the celebrity pastor we've never known. The celebrity pastor we've never known. Spoke, spoke to my heart. He says, The highest privilege and greatest honor in pastoring is not standing in the church pulpit, but praying by the hospital bed. It's not being accorded the highest place, but carrying out the least seen service. It's not broadcasting the truth to thousands, but whispering it to one. The holiest moments of pastoring are the ones that are seen by the fewest people. 
And in the end, I'm convinced these are the ones that mean the most. Most people will forget most of your sermons or your Bible studies or your prayers. But they'll remember that when, you, when they called, you came. They'll remember that you were there when their hearts were broken. That you were there to lead them to the Lord and speak his truth into their sorrows. That's what means the most. That's what faithfulness looks like. That's what I need to remind myself of. And so what happens when we seek success at the expense of faithfulness to God? When we do that, everything serves the goal, the idol of success. And God's glory plays second fiddle. But when we seek to be faithful to God's glory, it become, He becomes our greatest goal. His fame, His name becomes our greatest goal. And our success plays second fiddle. It's not important. That was the second major mistake. But the third thing I see with David is really the root of it all is that he's striving for an identity. He's striving for an identity outside of God's grace. So that's the third point this morning. We need to be careful what you put your trust in. You know, I was, um, I'd sort of lost my identity when I went to college, when I went to the university. I had gone through high school really rejecting God, going off my own, rebelling, rebelling against my parents, rebelling against authority, doing what I wanted, when I wanted. And I had gotten to college, and I was lost. I really was. didn't know what I wanted. I think I wanted just what the world wanted. I pursued those things. And I didn't, I didn't think I wanted God at the time, but I was looking for him. I was looking for him and I didn't realize it. And I became very, as I continued down the path of just going to parties and doing what the world does, I became very disillusioned one night and I saw what it all, what it all really added up to. And it added up to a life that doesn't mean much, that's fleeting. And it was when I started attending a campus ministry and I remember the pastor, teacher, talking about grace and the importance of it. And that grace is an unmerited gift. And that's what God's offering you. He's offering you an identity of grace where he showers you with his love. And that's what changed. That's that's how I think the Lord changed my heart. He reminded me of what grace was all about. You see, the Bible says our real problem is that every one of us is building our identity on something other than Jesus. That's our real problem. We're building an identity, a status, on our performance, on what we can do to be successful. And identity is really what is, is what's going on with David. Look at verse 12. What does Achish want to do? He trusts David. This is the, the king of the, the Philistines. He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. He wanted to change David's identity from anointed, soon-to-be king of Israel 
to an eternal servant of the Philistines. And that is what our idols always want to do. They want to change our identity, your identity, into an eternal servant, a slave of that idol. And so like David, we need to get a grip on grace. We need to understand grace, that that's our true identity. Del Ralph Davis writes, The Bible doesn't claim that God's servants are dipped in Clorox so that they'll be infallibly sin-free and attractive to you. When we read about David's life, this is real life. That's one of the, the things, when I read the Bible, the reason why it, it's so true to me is because it sounds so true. It's complex. It's messy. David is not perfect. He does bad things. So God's servants are not dipped in Clorox, Del Ralph Davis says. The living God does not have clean material to work with when he works with humans. And don't get sentimental when you sing hymns about the potter and the clay. Remember, it's only sinful clay that the potter works with. We should not criticize the potter because of the clay, but rather marvel that he stoops to work with such stuff. So when you think about your own life, that God's using you, working in you, do you marvel that he uses such stuff as what you see in your heart? And that's what grace is conclude with this great quote from Paul Tripp about grace. He says, John Newton's hymn, Amazing Grace, uses the best word possible for grace. Amazing. Tripp says, grace will turn your life upside down while giving you a rest you never known. Grace will convince you of your unworthiness without ever making you feel unloved. Grace will make you acknowledge that you cannot earn God's favor and it will remove your fear of not measuring up to his standards. Grace will comfort you with the fact that you are much less than you thought you were, even as it assures you that you can be far more than you ever imagined. Grace will, be, will put you in your place without ever putting you down. Grace will enable you to face truths about yourselves that you have hesitated to consider while freeing you from being self-consciously introspective. Grace will confront you with profound weaknesses and at the same time introduce you to newfound strength. Grace will tell you what you, what you aren't while welcoming you to what you can now be. Grace will make you as uncomfortable as you have ever been while offering you more comfort than you've ever known. Grace will drive you to the end of yourself while it invites you to fresh starts and new beginnings. Grace will dash your hopes but never leave you hopeless. Grace will decimate your kingdom as it introduces you to a better king. Grace will expose your blindness as it gives you eyes to see. Grace will make you sadder than you've ever been while it gives you greater cause for celebration than you had ever known. Grace enters your life in a moment and will occupy you for eternity. You simply cannot live in this broken down world unless you have a practical grasp on the grace that you've been given. It's beautiful. He decimates our kingdom, doesn't he? So that we can know and worship a better king. 
It's the grace of God that reveals our true identity. Is that your identity today? Is that what you say, that, that defines me? Christian, saved by grace, a needy sinner, rebel, enemy of God who's been forgiven, filled, saved, and loved by the only king we need, Jesus Christ. My exhortation to you is trust him, live in his love, and you will find that even when the world is falling apart, you can say, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the times when we're challenged, when our little kingdoms are shaken, and we're reminded of the true king whom we serve. We thank you for the times when you cause us to just see the emptiness of the promises of our idols. And you show us how great it is, how good it is, to rest upon the grace you've provided us in Christ Jesus. Would you open our eyes more and more to that grace and cause us to have unspeakable joy. In Jesus' name, amen.